You're listening to episode 141 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. Yo, so in Spider-Man, um, I gotta tell you guys, Jake Gyllenhaal's really hot. Okay. He's just a really good looking guy. It's funny because... You know, I was aware of Jake Gyllenhaal before this, but I had a moment like that where, like, it's like the first time that he, like, took the helmet off. I was like, wow, he's dreamy. Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal is <laughs> perhaps the dreamiest of the MCU actors at this point. I miss one podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Crazy Phil and Pete's Morning Show. Wow. <laughs> he's, um, he... I haven't seen the movie, but, like, in the trailers, he's portrayed as a hero, so I'm assuming that he's, you know, a good guy, uh, so he'll be in many, many MCU movies, and it's just, Marvel, you found your new leading man. Uh, all right, guys, I'm gonna take another week off, starting now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so welcome to this week's episode of the Comics Mouse. Yeah. Please, no, please, Sean, steer the ship so, again. What do you think? I can't. What do you think, Kale? It's, it's too much power and too much responsibility. <laughs> I hear it. Uh, so, before we get this ship a-rolling, I do want to let you guys know where you can find us all over the internet. We are at the Comics Pals on all podcast hosting platforms, so wherever it is that you want to listen to us, you can go over there and check us out. That includes Spotify, if you are uh, into that place, which is fine. That's a that's a good choice. Apple Music, better, you know, but hey. Um, <laughs> right. Damn, Sean! Sean throwing out the you know the hot take. Oh shit, we're off Spotify now. I need that Apple money. <laughs> I need that Apple money. Um, we are at the Comics Pals wherever social media is sold. You can grab us over there. You know, check out all of our cool stuff. You can write to us at the Comics Pals at gmail.com. We always appreciate it when you guys write in. So hit our line. Definitely do that. Yeah, and uh, check out our book clubs. We've got some good ones out. The Spider-Man Web Spinners, Web Spinners, Tales of Spider-Man. That's what that thing's called, right? Really great title. Crazy. Um, Great book club, Great book club. Not a great book, but fun to talk about. Don't spoil it. Well, okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but if you're in the mood for more Spider-Man Mysterio talk, that's what that one's all about. So we handpicked it. Yes, speaking of Spider-Man Mysterio, uh, our Spider-Man Far From Home review will not be on this episode. It is on... An adjacent episode that you can go check out. It's out now alongside this. Uh, right now. No delay. So, you know, you can swap over from this. Go listen to that. Come back here. Whatever you want to do. However you want to do it. It's your life. But it's there for you. That's the beauty of modern society, right? Like, you don't have to be at your radio, right, at 9 a.m. <laughs> to listen to the Comics Pals. You can take our asses with you wherever you go. Uh, honey, you know, honey, you take the kids to school. I'm sticking by the radio to listen to my pals talk about comics. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I went to see Far From Home, right? I'm not going to talk about the movie. But I went to see Far From Home with an old friend. I went to see with Harris. Hey, friend yeah. of the show. Yes, friend of the show. He's written in quite a few times. And uh, he was just, you know, t- yap- uh, yapping to me about... This podcast, he brought this podcast Ooh. up, and he brought up the last episode, the one that I oh, was a really on. good one, right? Right. And so uh, he's like, he's like, uh, this is Harris. This is how Harris talks. He's like, he's like, yeah. So I heard the episode. 
good lead in. Oh, I must have loved it. And I'm like, I just smile, you know? And I'm like, oh, what'd you think? <laughs> I, already, I already heard it. He's like, you needed to be there. <laughs> He's like, it felt like they were just waiting for you to come on the show. I, I didn't say anything. And then my girlfriend's like, oh, what are you guys talking about? And I'm like, well, I'm just, I'm just listening to Harris say things I can't say. So, you know, I'm just saying... Right? I'm just saying, during the conversation that you guys were having about the whole, um, the merger between whoever the hell, whoever merged. Oni and Lion Forge. It so sounded like there was just a hole in the show that's filled by Marco and I. It sounded like there was (laughs) a minority (laughs) hole. (laughs) And and the, the, the part that made me laugh the most was when Phil was like, Phil, Phil was like, oh no, man, <laughs> completely, <laughs> completely sincere. Phil's like, ah, oh, beans. You know, I, I, I just hope that, uh, literally like this. I just hope that uh, <laughs> they land on their feet and that they prosper. And I'm like, no shit. <laughs> what a take. I hope they prosper. What do you hope they burn what in a hell? Take. Well, uh, that's not a take. Listen, man, I did the best I could. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I mean, oh man. I mean, listen. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> um. Yeah. No, it sucks. It was shitty. I really hope they do well. Like, right. I know that's not a thing, but like, I like. I don't like it when people are the subject of uh, shitty big. I had a lot of hot takes in the episode. I was spitting hot fire about shitty corporations, and that's my thing. That's all right. Um, <laughs> that's fair. And then my favorite part, my other favorite part of the show, is when you guys uh, randomly reviewed Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse for no reason. Yeah, that was yeah. fun. No, that was that was actually the best part of the episode. Right. Um. Good job, guys. <laughs> well, that's the bit. Uh, yeah, lift lift behind the curtain a little bit. We actually thought you were coming on the whole time, so we were like, let's just record and wait till Sean let's gets tread on. Tread water until Sean gets here. <laughs> let's tread water. <laughs> let's see what happens. And you know, we like we got to an hour. And we we're like, man, he's still not here. Got to an hour and a half. Yeah, he's still not here. Two hours, two and a half hours. And I was like, I guess he's just not coming. I guess he's just not coming. He said. <laughs> I don't know who said that, but that's that's what we were all thinking. Right. I believe it. And so, yeah, we were just treading water, like Pete said. We tried, man. I don't know. You know? Sorry, Harris. <laughs> <laughs> I did I did my best. <laughs> Pete, please don't edit this part of the show, the part where you said Harris is dead to you. Please don't edit that part out. I'm editing the show, and uh, it, it will be in. So, uh... No, I'm just kidding. You guys did fine. It was a good show. I enjoyed it. We did the best we could. Uh, <laughs> we did. We did. I, I would prefer if you said you phoned it in, to be honest with you. I'd, I'd rather <laughs> that that was the case. You hit that kale bone uh, when you said Pete and Phil are talking about minority and race issues, because that's something Kale's always like, oh, bully. <laughs> I'm the whitest man in the world, and I got to talk about <laughs> the trials and tribulations of people of color in the United States. Oh boy! Yeah, but the difference is that, like, when when Kale has to do that, I can see his <laughs> like body like getting um, douche chills. You know, where like you just uh, you know that 
I see that happening. I see him squirming in his seat whenever an issue comes up that he has to talk about, right? And you love making him sweat. It's funny. It's funny. I, I take pleasure in that. Uh, especially when he gets some shit wrong, like when he thought, what do you think, Marco was Mexican? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus. Or the time he uh, got her first, his, his girlfriend's first name wrong, he mispronounced it. I don't recall that. So, in any event, I did want to play a little quick game. We do, we do actually talk about comic books on this podcast, not sure if you're aware. We don't just talk about previous episodes of the right. show. <laughs> uh, so, I, I, I did want to play a little game. So, a research study done by U.S. Dish, who are one of the resellers of Dish. So, like, if you ever go to, I don't know, Walmart or the mall or something, and you see one of those stands where they're trying to hawk Dish Network at you, um, this is one of those groups. They did a study, and it's not really scientific, so I don't read too much into it, but They used uh, data that was available through Google Trends to try to figure out which comic book company was favored across the country between DC and Marvel. And then they actually went even deeper to try to figure out which superhero character was more popular in each state. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. So, I have the information in front of me. You guys don't. So, I want you to try to guess first... Which of the big two was more popular across the United States? So DC. So I feel like they, I feel like they completely wasted their time because it's obviously Marvel and it's obviously Marvel by a lot. Okay, Pete. So, uh, much like the world of politics, uh, so Dish does this every year, and the the votes like swing pretty wildly. So I'm going to guess that DC was the most popular this year because Marvel was the most popular last you year. You know this already, don't you? I sure did. I wanted to see if I could get away with it. You make it so blatant. Yeah. Because you're bringing was... facts to the table. Like, Jesus. Wow. That was pretty bad, bud. Yeah. Wow. You lied and you cheated. Oh, my goodness. But I, now I just have to steal. All right, Eddie Guerrero. You're out of here. I just need one more opportunity and then I'm good. Wow. Viva La Raza. Where's my wallet? <laughs> in, in any event, uh, Pete does happen to be right. As I said, he knows this already. Uh, DC. I did say that on the show last week, didn't I? Did you? I glazed right I, over I think it. I did. I can't imagine why, because most casual audiences are much more familiar with Marvel because of the movies. That has a wider penetration of the United States. <laughs> like... I think most people are going to be Googling stuff about comics. They're going to be Googling Marvel shit, I would think. The only one that, uh, the only thing that, like, makes sense to me is, like, there's the whole WB, like, angle of it all. Like, all those shows are really popular. So, like, I can see, like, some of those characters, like, being the most popular. They don't have anywhere near the reach of these Marvel movies. And this was the year of Infinity War Endgame. I think what you guys might be overlooking is that a lot of people who are going to respond to things like this are probably not necessarily just respond to things like this, but who are in America are, are older and they grew up with DC characters primarily. And so that's I what see. they're into. Okay. Um, I, I, I think it's funny because the, the split between the justice league and the Avengers is definitely 
I would say in a lot of ways, generational, and that older people will favor the Justice League, whereas younger people will favor the Avengers. Yeah, I know, like, <clears throat> and this is, like, obviously totally anecdotal, but I think to your point, Sean, like, uh, my dad knows who most of the members of the Justice League are, just, like, through cultural osmosis, but, like, he doesn't know... Like, he didn't know who Iron Man was until we went and saw Iron Man in 2008. Right. You know, he had never heard of Iron Man. Um, and I think that's, to your point, like, it's true of, like, a lot of boomers because there was a lot of media based around DC heroes when they were growing up. You know, Wonder Woman had a TV show. Obviously, Batman has been culturally relevant, like, basically since his inception. Uh, Superman, similarly, you know, super popular. Um, even Flash and Green Lantern to, like, varying degrees, right? Like... They had like a lot more mainstream cultural relevance than they do yeah. now. Though you would be surprised how many boomers get the Green Lantern confused with the Green Hornet, which is real. <laughs> that makes sense, though. I guess I see it. Yeah, like if you don't like know anything about superheroes, you know, you just like remember that there were shows about. They're both guys who wear green masks. I get it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, they both, <laughs> both the Green Lantern and Green Hornet beat up people so that their brains turn to mush, and baby boomers have brains that are already mush. It's a match made in heaven. Uh, did you guys reference who was most popular in the States? No, 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 no. I, I think I, like, brought it up in passing or something like that. It was something I was, like, thinking about doing, and then other stuff was more Fair important. Fair enough. So, do you guys want to take a guess as to the most char- the most popular character in the U.S.? Well, Pete See, this, knows I don't, I don't, re- I don't remember any of this cool. stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, okay. Um, Aquaman, probably. Ah, that would make sense. The movie did come I'm out. I'm lying, like a liar. Well, it could that could be true though. <laughs> I'm like, lying like a liar. I do, I do remember reading that he was the most popular character in Hawaii because that's where Jason Momoa comes from, and like I guess it was real popular there. Well, yeah, I buy that. Yeah. Because he surfs in the movie on a surfboard. Take your guess. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, at Batman? Uh, I feel like that's a, that's a safe one. I'm going to have to take a guess uh, with Robert Downey Jr. as the most popular superhero in America. And Iron Man? All right. Well, you're both wrong because... But Spider-Man? The right answer is Superman. Hey! Damn! There we go. So... That's weird. Superman is the most popular character in eight states. Why? Uh, Hulk and Supergirl are both uh, tied for second with seven states in which they're the most popular. Supergirl. Dude, that's it's the show. It's got to be the show. And Batman and Thor both had five states. Batman is fine. Thor, that's kind of random. Well, he's popular in the states of Norway, Sweden, uh-huh. Denmark. <laughs> well, I I feel like Thor is another one that I get, though, because I feel like there's a real renaissance around that yeah. character right now. Like, Ragnarok was hot, and people loved it, and he was, like, a big star of Endgame. I don't think he's a know? renaissance character, but okay. Um, no, I just mean... I think that... Uh, God damn it, Phil. I walked right into that one. <laughs> the answers at the top here... Make me feel more like my original theory was correct because Superman, I mean, the, the, the surprise that you guys had, like, that speaks to that, right? That Superman definitely resonates 
mostly with older people because they saw the movies and things like that, right? Supergirl is another one. She's not relevant at all, but she used to be. Not really. She had a movie. Supergirl had a movie. <laughs> that movie, that was that was like a D-list movie that a lot of people did not see. That may be true, but whether they saw it or not, they're aware that she had a movie. They're aware that Superman has a, that there's a girl version of, of Superman. I think that makes sense. Uh, I think that's a little bit of a stretch, personally. I honestly, I honestly think it would be. I think it's more attributed to like the CW crowd, because like I think that that those shows are like quiet juggernauts. You know, like there are a lot of well, you know, let me ask, teeny boppers that love those shows. Let me ask Sean a question then. If that's if, if following Pete's logic is are how many states are there where it's like Green Arrow or the Flash are the most popular char- characters in comics in the country? So there's like a there's a whole list of this thing. Um, if there are going to be they're going to be one staters, yeah. Okay. Um, so the only other ones that had like more than one was um, actually there really weren't. Most of let most ask- of it was just like Aquaman had one, Captain Marvel had one, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Let let me hit you with this question. Yeah. What was the weirdest one on on this list? Uh... I think it's weird that Captain America and Iron Man tied for most popular in Utah. <laughs> do you, do you think uh, this, this is this is this is not going to be nice? Uh, do you think the Mormon audience thinks that Captain America and Iron Man are both down with polygamy? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was going to be a way worse joke. Ah. <laughs> uh. Star Lord somehow took one. <laughs> oh, is he most popular on Jupiter or what? What state? What state is he most popular in? Uh, you know what, man? I don't know. Uh, right. I'm I'm I I'm looking at this map and I am blanking on what state this is. On oh, what state it is? <laughs> yeah. Here, send me the map. I will send it to you right now. Now it's a geography game. Yeah. Right. Now it evolves. <laughs> Sean just started laughing, and I was like, "Is it that funny? Which state it was?" No, no, that's not it at all. <laughs> the joke um, is that it was Washington D.C., and that's not a state. Where I don't see Star Lord on here. Am I blind? He's up at the top, right below Supergirl. You can't see him, but it says his name. Oh, oh, oh! That's South Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> Why? That, that okay. is that is that's South so random. And also, what's random is that Catwoman has two states. I love that. Ar- yeah, Arizona really big into Catwoman. Apparently so. So, uh, Black Black Panther taking a lot of states. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Black Panther is the man. So, if you guys want to check this out, you can go to usdish.com. They've got their whole. Uh, they've got their list there. It's, it's kind of fun, uh, and it might surprise you. There's some weird. There's some weird ones for sure. Data is fun. Sure. Now, do you do, <laughs> do you guys think Wonder Woman is the most popular in Alaska because they uh, feel warm thinking about her? You were like laughing to yourself through that entire joke, and it wasn't even funny at all. Like, I was, <laughs> I was, I was trying to think of a way to phrase it that wasn't bad. You're, like trying to like build yourself up, like, oh yeah, this is gonna get him. Oh yeah. So <laughs> since we're referencing criticism from. <laughs> from people in my life. Oh man. Uh 
Al reached out to me. You guys will remember Al. He drew some uh, some fun fan art for the show way back when. And uh, he messaged me to say he was catching up on some episodes and that he really enjoyed the show. But what he hated about the show was the bad humor. <laughs> oh, man, I'm delivering. Yes, you are. And in fact, hopefully Al doesn't mind. I'm going to reach into my phone to read his specific text because I thought it was really funny. Oh, God. All right. All right, guys. Spotlight's on me. I'm on blast. Here we go. One criticism is that the comedy bits your friends do kills me. And then I said, like, you don't think they're very funny? And he said, not at all. He said, I literally (laughs) forget they do that every time I listen to a new episode and I say to myself, God damn it. I look forward to all of your opinions on a topic, and I forget I have to go through that shit. LMAO. Uh, <laughs> can't win them all. Thanks, Al. <laughs> all right, let's do some... Damn, we're getting we're getting the real hits from our fans this week. Just like, yo, I love your show, but you guys suck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, if you don't have... If, you're, if, you're, if your fan base doesn't have a love-hate relationship with you on some level, are you really getting the job done? Well, I just have to say, I'm so happy. Like every time you've brought it up, I've like my stomach is clenched because I'm just like, what did what did I do? What did I do wrong? And every time it's been Phil, and I just get this like overwhelming feeling of relief. Well, I mean, he said the bad humor <laughs> overall. Oh no, no, you're right. I- I'm not saying that I'm funny. <laughs> Phil's the funny one, and he sucks. So what does that say about me? <laughs> well, at least you don't uh, you don't try to make a bit out of your. Lack of humor. Um, <laughs> so, There's one silver lining. Yeah. Let's jump into the Pals Pulls. From right. Phil, we've got Green Lantern, Hardcover Volume 1. This is Inter- Intergalactic Lawman. This is the Grant Morrison stuff. I didn't know that there was going to be a hardcover coming out so soon, and it's really exciting because uh, this is uh, probably my favorite book of 2019 so far. You staying uh, current? I am. Uh, well, I didn't read last week, so I'm one. I'm one week behind, but um, it's been really good. And I think Liam Shart Shart, <laughs> damn, <laughs> Liam, high quality humor that we're talking about, right? I think that was on, on. Yeah, I don't think that was on purpose. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, he's. I. I. I think he like gets progressively more and more comfortable too um, with the art. It's just I. I you, you don't see a combination like this on most books, obviously, and this is... Sean, last week we talked about this book. Is this only going to 12, or is it, like, an ongoing? I mean, it was solicited as 12. Yeah. And it's always been Dude, that. when I... Lo- when I looked at the DC.com posting of it last week for, like, whatever referential reason, like, it said on the number one, a new ongoing. Yeah, because... and I. Because it's it's not a limited series in the like so the difference between Martian Manhunter and Grant Morrison's Green Lantern is that Martian Manhunter will absolutely end after twelve issues. This book could continue on with another creative team. Uh, you know, other things could happen, so it's not going to. I end. see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's that it's a new monthly Green Lantern series right. starting with the Grant arc. Right. 
Got it. Okay. Yeah, Phil and I were, like, very confused by that because we're like, I could have sworn this was, like, definitely only going to be, like, 18 issues or something. Yeah, you yeah. Know? I was... Something weird and specific. I was screaming in my head the answer. Yeah. Uh, and I obviously, I couldn't give it to you guys. But... Uh, they have it now. Yeah, there you go. So you're looking forward yeah, to I, it. I'm, I'm buying this. It comes out the day before my birthday. Uh, and again, it snuck up on me. And I couldn't be more excited. I... I think my, maybe the only hesitation I would have is if it's only going to be 12 issues, there's a possibility that it could all be released in one edition down the road. So that'd be the only uh, hesitation I would have, but I'm still going to buy this. Buy the collection, then if they do another bigger one, you just give that one to somebody else yeah, that's, that you want to turn on to it. That's you know? typically the move I do with stuff like this, so yeah. But yeah, man, I... Uh... Like, I fell off that book just because I wasn't super interested in the narrative thread, but, like, god damn, like, Liam Sharp is so fucking good. He's incredibly talented. The art on that book is insane. Yeah, I've been enjoying the book very much. High quality. So, moving on, uh, Pete and I have the same polls this week. We both chose Second Coming number one. Yeah, I'm really excited to, like, you know... Flip the finger to uh, Christian extremists by buying this book. <laughs> yeah, so those of you who've been following the show or following the news on your own will know that this is actually the book by Mark Russell and Richard Pace that was supposed to come out through DC. Uh, supposed to be a Vertigo book, in fact. And uh, DC received a lot of criticism from a Christian, you know, fundamentalist group that didn't want this book to see the light of day and so dc tried to work with mark russell to get him to change certain things but he was unwilling to compromise on his vision which is his right and it's also dc's right to say hey we don't want to publish this anymore and so dc did the right thing at least in this regard by saying you guys can publish this elsewhere if you want to they gave them the rights back so now it's coming out through ahoy so, I was always probably going to buy this. Now, I'm excited to buy it because I want to show support for books that actually stick to their vision and don't compromise. I think that's that's artistic. Um, yep. I think... Yeah, it's one of those... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, just, sorry. I was going to say, I think compromise is rarely uh, something you do for artistic reasons. Um, so, I'm all in on this book. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, like, something that I feel like you and I often both say, Sean, is that, like, you have to, like, like speak with your wallet, you know? And, like, I'm here to support this book and show that, like, I support them not compromising their vision and, like, going to a smaller publisher and, like, you know, preserving the book as it was intended. Yeah. So I want to see this book succeed. Absolutely. And then... Never heard of Ahoy. Me neither. So they probably... Could have a big hit on their hands with this one. It's a bump for them, I would say so. We also both chose Event Leviathan number two. Yeah, which is exciting. Uh, Pete, I don't remember. I don't think you loved the first issue, right? No, I really liked the uh, the precursor. What was that called? Yeah, the uh, Leviathan Rising special. Yeah, I really liked the Leviathan Rising special. I thought that um, that was a really compelling way to set up the story. Especially because I hadn't been following along with what was going on in, in Bendis' Superman stuff. So, like, I thought it did a good job of, like, 
setting up this news story while giving me enough to be like, okay, I understand what's happening and like I'm actually invested in like where this goes forward. And the first issue was a little bit of a letdown for me. Um, I didn't think it was terrible, but it felt like it was. It just was kind of slow, and like it, it didn't. It didn't do as much as I wanted it to, considering how well I thought the zero issue like did kick things off. You know, so it kind of felt like it was like, all right, we're like winding things back down, and it felt like they were starting over, even though I had, I was like already like, well, I already know what's like. Let's go. Sorry, Marco, my thing cut out. Oop. Okay, I'm back. Sorry. Um, so, yeah, I, I think just issue one felt like a momentum killer, I guess, a little bit for me. So I'm looking forward to two because I'm hoping that we're going to get moving again here yeah. because I, uh, I, I am still very engaged in the narrative that they set up, but I, I want to get to it. Yeah. I think that's probably fair. I liked Event Leviathan number one, I think, most out of anyone, and on the show anyway. And I'm looking forward to number two. Uh, Bendis and Maleev are a proven pairing. Uh, they rarely miss, and so far they haven't for me. So, can't wait for this one. Now, we're going to jump into the news. I want to remind everyone... Again, if you're looking for the Spider-Man Far From Home review, you got to go that way. Which way? That way. Because it is not on this episode. It's on an adjacent episode. You can find it wherever you're listening to this right now. It's there. Just go click over. Um, instead, we're going to talk about Sandman. Because finally, after forever and ever, there will be a Sandman TV series. And it's headed to Netflix. I feel like this has been in development hell for, like, ever. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so this property, they've tried to turn it into movies primarily forever. This is something that they've been, you know, working on. Uh, most recently, three years ago, New Line Cinema tried to make it into a movie. Um, and they just kind of realized it wasn't going to work out. But uh, now we know that it's coming to Netflix which is awesome. It's going to be uh, an 11-episode season. So, I, I, I mean, that's not long for Netflix, but for comparison's sake, Stranger Things just came out, and that's eight episodes. So about three episodes of filler. Hopefully not, because Netflix has been criticized a lot for that. Yeah, I mean, I think 11 episodes, that, that seems doable, right? Because to me, I always feel like the Marvel Netflix shows always felt like they were like two or three episodes too long, and they're like 13, almost all of them. Yeah. So it's like, 11 could be, that could be good. Oh, I like I like your take there, Pete. <laughs> so one thing that gives me hope is that Alan Heinberg is basically running the show. Alan Heinberg is uh, famous for having written co-written the wonder woman movie um he was all over gray's anatomy uh he wrote uh oh gosh young avengers i think it is really yeah. i didn't know he did comics too yeah oh yeah that's where i had no that's idea where i first heard it, uh, of him actually yeah he wrote he wrote uh young avengers he he was the guy who Shit, that's uh, awesome. spearheaded that him and jim chung damn he worked on party of five <laughs> he's, he's, he's been around he's been around um and he's super talented so if you've never you've probably encountered something from him at some point 
But if you, you know, if you haven't, my telling you what he's done and, and how good I think he is should speak to his quality. So he's going to be writing this, um, but then he's actually also the showrunner. I uh, loved Young Avengers so much as a kid, you don't even know. I, also, I guess I don't, he, he did a Wonder Woman book, too, with Terry Dodson and... Um... Uh, I was just reading it. Terry Dodson, or Terry and Rachel Dodson. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool. That's really cool. That has me way more excited, you know, by like knowing that, because like show running is obviously like a very different thing. Like that's probably something new for uh, for Alan, but I mean, proven quantity as a writer, and like obviously has the the comics chops. So yeah, I mean, like that seems like a great person to head up this project because he has so much experience and like good, like, you know, high quality experience in both television and comics. Yeah. So like who better to do something like this really? So Neil Gaiman, who is the, obviously the creator of Sandman will be very close to this project because, uh, these three are working as a, as a unit. So Gaiman will be the executive producer, um, alongside David Goyer, who uh. is, famous for a lot of different things i mean you know phil's reaction is the other side of the coin there are quite a few people who aren't a fan of his i happen to be one he's done a lot of things that i like he's done some stuff that i didn't like he did work on the blade trilogy so i mean yeah he's worked on a lot he was a big part of um, of of the batman trilogy yeah that's true yeah. too yeah just because like just because the stuff he's been doing in like the you know, because I, I I kind of agree with Phil in terms of like having that that like uh, immediate just like eh like that gives me pause. But like all of his pre Snyder stuff is good. So like if he's not working with Zack Snyder, maybe it'll be fine. It's, it's a know. recency bias thing because you got to remember like he's he's working alongside these people. He's not necessarily yeah. the person spearheading. So he's also just an EP. I well, he he's I a, he, he writes as well. I genuinely don't care for any of his his filmography. That's not he, true. You don't like the Dark Knight trilogy? So, uh, I only I only really like the Dark Knight, which he isn't. He's not. He he's listed as helping with the story, but not as the sole writer. So like that's it. I don't think he was the sole writer on any of those. Well, uh, just says Batman Be- he, uh, under Batman Begins, he where it says writer, it just says yes. But for Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, it says story and not yes or no. So whatever that means. Well, story usually means that you like helped outline it, right? And that's why I said for Batman Begins, it's him and Christopher Nolan. So it looks like he was active in the screenplay writing. Those movies were were definitely made by committee between Chris. Nolan, his brother Jonathan, and Goyer for sure, one hundred percent. Well, and just to, just to clarify, just for a second, um, what I said before, Sean, when I said he was just a showrunner, I didn't mean like in general or an EP. Um, I just meant on this project. Like he's not writing on Sandman. He's writing he? the first episode with Gaiman and Heinberg. Okay, so okay, I, I did look it up. He and Christopher Nolan wrote Batman Begins, but he did not write The Dark Knight or The Dark Knight Rises, but he helped come up with the story with Christopher Nolan, so that's the okay. difference. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, I mean, look, we could talk about Goyer all day. I think his filmography speaks for itself. Whatever it says to you is up to you. But I think that these three together 
that speaks to a pretty powerful group. And I think that given this is a franchise that they've been trying to make a thing on film forever, since the 90s, mm-hmm. Gaiman being attached to this makes me feel like if they're running with it, it's probably because they've hit on something that makes sense. And I think with Sandman in particular, you really don't necessarily want to go the movie route. It, it, it works so well as a as a long-form story, and Netflix is a perfect place to bring that to life, I think. I completely agree with you, Sean. I, like, I'm always the one to say that, like, in, in general, like, I definitely have a TV bias, I would say, when it comes to TV versus film. I, I kind of prefer serialized storytelling when it's something that's character-driven, you know? Um, I was having, like, a conversation about this the other day where, like, I think movies are better at, like, making, like, statements and using characters as, like, plot devices, whereas I think TV is a better medium for developing characters over a longer period of time because you just have more time with them, you know? So for something like you know, a comic adaption, I think it's almost always better as a TV show if you have the budget to make it, to realize it properly, you know? Like, I think superheroes work in movies better than most because of this, like, nature of the way that superhero stories are told, you know? Whereas, like, something like this, like, how many movies would you have to do to tell a complete Sandman story, you know? And, like, without, like, truncating it a lot. Um... Can I hit you guys with a confession? Yeah. One of my biggest holes in my reading is I've never read Sandman. I haven't either. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I'm i just talking about it because I know that it's like, I know the the format, you know, it's a comic. I own two of the, like, massive, beautiful... Oh, really? Yeah. Um, not read Those are like 200 bucks. Yeah. You haven't read it either? No, I read the first one, like, I read, like, maybe maybe 30% of it. And then I put it down for whatever reason and never picked it back up. But um, mm-hmm. this inspires me to want to go back and, and actually uh, read those. Um, I've been dancing around it since they, like, brought the IP back. You know, because, like, I'm a fan of Gaiman's work a lot. And I don't I don't know why I never checked out Sandman. Um, I find it so intimidating because the volume of stuff is just so girthy. Um, yeah, wow. What's up? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I wanted to read this quote from Eric Hesserer, who was the last person to tackle Sandman for a movie when it was going to be produced and put out by New Line. He was going to write it. Uh, he said the following. I came to the conclusion that the best version of this property exists as an HBO series or limited series, not as a feature film, not even as a trilogy. The structure of the feature film really doesn't mesh with this. So I went back and said, here's the work that I've done. This isn't where it should be. It needs to go to TV. That's a pretty interesting admission from someone who was attached to write the movie, just kind of admitting failure. Like, I can't do this. It's not, it doesn't make sense for this. Um, for this medium so i feel like this is one of those this is one of those examples of patience paying off because if you you know if you blow your load on sandman uh three years ago with new lines prop uh new lines angle you probably don't get another shot so soon and if you do it in the 90s probably doesn't work and you know who knows where that goes after that 
I think this is a perfect storm, and people who love Sandman and have been waiting, hopefully this ends up being what they've been waiting for. Yeah, um, I, I mean, uh, when, when the Watchmen movie came out in 2008, that is what preempted, that, that is what prompted me to read the book before the movie came out. Uh, oh, really? Well, I was like a sophomore in high school. Fair enough. That's what got me. Huh. So, uh, I mean, maybe this will be kind of an inciting incident for me to actually take a plunge in this intimidating web. It's, I mean, happen- that happens to me a lot for stuff that like I've wanted to read and never got around to. Yeah. As soon as people are talking about it, it like puts it back on your radar. Dare- you know, Daredevil the show prompted me to read the Frank Miller run. So yeah, uh, I think Marco's a big fan of uh, Sandman. So yeah. Probably. So, uh, the next string of topics that we're going to discuss have to do with uh, writers feeling screwed over working on um, big, big two properties. So, Cena Grace, I think that's how you say his name. Yeah, yeah, you're uh, right. Talked recently about feeling like there was a lack of support from Marvel while he was writing Iceman. So, to smarten you guys up, uh, Iceman came out as gay uh, a few years ago. And Bendis' X-Men run. Yeah, that was, that was during Bendis' X-Men run. Now, I think it's important to say this because it informs, it may inform some of what, actually it definitely does inform some of what Cena will later say about his run. Now, when that happened, it wasn't well received. Iceman coming out as gay was not well received. Very divisive to say the least. Yes. I was an active reader of Bendis's X-Men at the time. I read the issue. I despised what Bendis did. And it's not because I don't think that you can have a gay X person. A gay you know, a gay X-Man. It's not it has nothing is, to do with that. There is North Star. Yeah, of course. And I thought that was awesome. The, the when, when he got married and everything. Um, it was, first of all, it was because of the way it happened. And I'm going to say these things because they matter to the story. Jean Grey goes in his mind and the mind of young Iceman and sees that he's gay and outs him. That's crazy. I'm, I'm surprised that Bendis was allowed to do that because that's insane. But, so that was a big problem for me. But then it was also the fact that you're talking about a character who's ne- never, like, there's never been a hint of that or anything like that. And it just felt very much like, I'm doing this, so forget about everything that you've seen or read before. This is what I'm doing. That's how it came across to me. And with Young Iceman being gay, that was like, okay, maybe this is a different version of Iceman, whatever. Then that reflected on. The adult version of Iceman, that was like, whoa, how, why, what? It just came out of nowhere. So that was my issue. I think a lot of people felt the same way. And so like Phil said, this was a very divisive decision. It became like a meme, too. Like that whole page, that template of of Jean Grey uh, and, and the lazy paneling. It was six panels, uh, three by three, or it was two by three. And... Like it became like a running joke on the internet because it was it was so uh, half-assed. Yeah. But also, it's uh, generally speaking, it's like considered pretty problematic to like 
like out someone who's not ready to be out, so to speak. Yeah, like that's I think that that thread of it has always been weird to me. Like it's 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 like that that as a I I don't to me I don't think like having a character who has like you know like a character who has historically not been gay coming out is not something that you like I don't think that's inherently bad if it's well executed right like if it's like oh well like they were closeted or something like that and like you earn it you know you set it up and you earn it but I think like having it be like oh Jean Grey went in his mind and found out he was gay and outed him and then both Icemen are like oh what the fuck I'm gay like I don't and maybe that's like maybe that's like a uh I, I don't know I I feel like just to what what you said Phil it, it feels like that's a weird way to do that that feels like it's not a it feels like oh hey we flipped a switch what? you know rather than like it being a moment that Iceman as a character like comes to realize and grapples with and like it means something to his development like you know what I mean like it, it doesn't feel like that was a development for the character as much as it was like well Here's a headline, you know, like this will get a this will get a reaction, think, you know. I think that's what Sean's whole beef is, right? I could I could easily appreciate a journey. There was no journey. There was right. Here's what it is now, and all of a sudden now he's a totally different character, and that just doesn't like didn't feel right. Well, and I feel like in this book, like the Cena Grace book, the goal of it was kind of to like explore that side of Iceman, and, like, according to Cena, it doesn't really seem like that was what they were interested in, like, letting him yeah, do. Yeah, so I'm gonna get into it now. Uh, he he has a Tumblr page, and he, you know, really was very honest, I think, about what his experience was at Marvel with this book. So, uh, so he says, there was already a lot of backlash around the manner in which Bobby Drake, uh, aka Iceman, came out. Marvel needed to smooth that landing and put a so what to the decision. After a point, I could almost laugh off people making light of my death, saying they have cancerous AIDS from my book, or insinuating I'm capable of sexual assault. Almost. Between Iceman's cancellation and its subsequent revival, Marvel reached out and said they noticed threatening behavior on my Twitter account, only after asking me to send proof of all the nasty shit popping up online. An editor called. These conversations always happen over the phone, offering to provide tips and tricks to deal with the cyberbullying. I cut him off. All he was going to do was tell me how to fend for myself. I needed Marvel to stand by me with more work opportunities to show the trolls that I was more than a diversity hire. We'll keep you in mind. I got so tired of that sentence. Now, I want to stop and point out that um, that's the same thing that Chelsea Kane said when she was going through her stuff with Mockingbird, that yep. they basically didn't really take her seriously in terms of the bullying and the threats that she was facing. She didn't feel supported. And so he says the same thing. That's not a good look. No, not at all. Especially when you have multiple unrelated people making the same claim that like, you know, especially given Chelsea Kane's like history at Marvel, right? Like it, that it does feel like they're treating these people like diversity hires and not treating them like any other talent in the roster and like not supporting them in these moments when they're being attacked you know not standing by them as their creators and being like well we believe in cena's vision or you know chelsea's vision and you know we're gonna publish it you know and like you can make a decision when you read the book yeah 
and they're not they're not doing that you know they're dropping these people at the first sign of trouble he also goes on to talk about how he wanted opportunities to write other characters and the only opportunity he got was wolverine diamond claws uh and it was just like a six page thing um so nothing nothing substantial he was never offered anything substantial from marvel to show that he could do more than just write a gay character and that was something that i had a problem with uh, earlier on with ta-nehisi coates was yeah. it's like cool he's writing black panther what else are they going to give him they gave him captain america they gave him the keys to the kingdom pretty much yeah um unfortunately they didn't offer Cena the same opportunity and i definitely see how that could have hurt him um but that's not the worst of it and i'm not going to read through this whole thing because i don't want i don't want to do that but i'm just going to give you the run through and you can go to his tumblr page at cenagrace.tumblr.com and he breaks it all down um but he talks about how um he was told that if the book was too gay it would be dead on arrival um by his editor that he should expect a cancellation he was told um he, he he received a tight leash in terms of press what he was allowed to do um he had to get all his interviews pre-approved uh he says that that's not normal yeah can i just read that one quote from this passage there he says this would be fine if it was the standard but i assure you none of my straight male colleagues seek permission to go on podcasts promoting their books which uh i'm not totally sure that's true because I know that we've tried to speak to some people and they've told us we needed to go through their publicists. Um, they weren't allowed to make those kind of choices. Um, so I don't know if that's across the board true. I, I feel like that is mostly for the contract people, though. You know, like, like the like exclusive like dogs like that, you know? Because like, you think about... We've had people that have come on our show to talk about work they did at Marvel that, like, we had Sabella on, like, and we talked about some of the work he did uh, at DC, right, with, like, Green Lantern uh, Space Ghost, like, briefly, and that wasn't a thing that, like, seemingly that he needed to get approved to talk about, right? Like, it was like, oh, he's coming on, and we're going to talk about his work, you know? So I could see that, because, like, obviously we, we experienced that with, like, Scott Snyder, you know, but, like, that could be a thing that Scott Snyder has even decided, right? Where he has a publicist because he's a big name and he only wants to talk to people that go through his publicist, you know? Uh, nah. He he seemed to very much want to talk to me. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot you actually talked to him about it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, to your point, I think it's, like, we just don't necessarily know the ins and outs of that part of the industry. But, I mean, you have to imagine that Cena talks to a lot of his peers in terms of like people that are at that same kind of like, you know, entry level, you know, or not even like entry level, but like they've broken in, but they're not yeah, a yeah. big, big name, you know? So I'm going to just read, uh, the, the way he wraps this thing up. And again, I, I think you should go read it for yourself, but, um, he says, well, actually first he says, when the series returned, no one at Marvel asked me, what do you think landed with readers? Nor did they ask me the question that Axel Alonso, who was uh, uh, an earlier editor on the book, uh, did. What matters to your community? So when I wrote what I thought the fans would be into, a story about a man learning to be a better ally in the war against hate, editorial totally missed its value. 
Uh, and then he ends this thing by saying, truly, I hate writing this. In keeping with Pride Month, I am proud of the work I did on Iceman. I love the book. It sucks that I may be tarnishing his legacy going public about how the cookies were made. That said, the time for self-congratulating is over, and folks should be earnestly listening when they ask, what could we have done better? So, I want to pose the question to you guys. How much of this is potentially sour grapes over a book that was critically acclaimed for sure, um, but not necessarily lighting the sales charts on fire that ultimately, you know, was canceled? Um, and how much of this is Marvel just really uh, bungling the whole thing? I think it's more on the side of Marvel bungling the whole thing for a specific reason. Because, like, to me, right, like reading this, it doesn't feel like Cena is mad that the book was canceled. It's more that, like, he did not receive support from his publisher when he was being attacked when he was when his book was being criticized when you know at all really like and he, and he describes a work environment that isn't supportive of him and that didn't take him seriously and that didn't treat him uh on the same level as at least from his perspective yeah. right as the same as the other talent and I think the fact that both him and Chelsea Kane had similar experiences where they were attacked the publisher did not support them, and they said that they felt like they were not taken seriously, leads me to believe that this is a pattern of behavior from Marvel. I don't think that Cena and Chelsea are both lying. Right. Um, and I don't really see what Cena stands to gain from making this Tumblr post about this book that was canceled, like, a, over a year ago, right? Like, I mean, it was a while ago now. We talked about it on the show. Um so what does he really stand to gain from doing this other than, like he said, potentially tarnishing the legacy of a book that he's proud of? Well, that's that's the thing, right, is that if, if, if he were exaggerating, that would be potentially very libelous uh, because of his claims about, like, his editor, for instance. Mm-hmm. And that's opening up a whole can of worms. And I get the impression, and we've all had probably comparable experiences of feeling great dissatisfaction in the workplace and Mm -hmm. debating whether or not it was sour grapes or not i get the distinct impression that he's speaking his truth yeah that that's my perspective as well um and granted like i'll i'll just call this out because like i guess i do have a little bit of a bias like i'm familiar with cena because uh he was the editor on the walking dead for like years. So like, you know, I, I, I like Cena and, you know, I support his work, um, when I can, but, uh, so, you know, maybe that's like giving me a little bit of like giving him the benefit of the doubt of being like, I trust him, but it is the thing of that. Like, this isn't the first story we've heard like this. And it's so far away from the actual events that I just, I don't see what he stands to gain from lying about it. You know, like if he had a positive relationship with Marvel or even if it was sour grapes, like, don't you think he'd want to keep that line of communication open to maybe get more work there? You know, like all those sorts of things like this doesn't do anything for him, but make him a whistleblower at one of the two biggest companies you can work at in the industry. And like, I bet that this is going to make it harder for him to find jobs because like even at DC, right? Like, are they going to want to give him the shot thinking he might write a blog post about how an editor was shitty to him, you know, a year later? Like, you know, I don't know, you know, so I, 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 I believe this. Uh, honest, um, 
on its face, it, it's a bad look to do this to to a 16-time WWE champion and the doctor of thugonomics. What's the angle? Uh, Cena, right? That's what we're talking oh about. Oh my god. Al, I get, really, I, I really blanked on that. I was like, "What are you fucking I'm, I'm, talking?" I know about? Al's writing in right now. He's living with that. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, he talks about how he is. He he at some point came to the realization that he wasn't going to be getting any more work from Marvel. Um, so that gives me the impression that he might feel, well, I'm not getting any more work from them, so I'm just gonna say what I'm gonna say. Um, that being said, I feel that, um, look, you can't handle every situation the same way. And when you're, when, when, when you have a person writing a comic book about a gay character and that, that person in themselves, you know, that person himself is gay, the writer, you, you need to, you need to change the way you approach handling that yeah. situation. And you can't do it the way you would handling Brian Michael Bendis, right? Because he's probably not going to receive death threats on the same scale or with the same ferocity. Not that any time you receive a death threat, you shouldn't take it seriously, but he's not going to receive the same kind of feedback that Cena Grace is going to. Right, and I think the likelihood is that, like, Cena Grace is is way more likely to encounter like actual like violence yeah. or something like that than somebody like like people tell tell Bendis to kill himself every day, but there are people who truly hate Cena Grace just for being who he is, you know, and will never accept his book. Yeah, and and so I I I think Marvel dropped the ball, and I wonder what if anything they're doing to really. Honestly, just just be better when it comes to these kind of situations. You don't want this to be how you're viewed, you know? Um, no. It definitely comes across to me like there's a culture over there that really isn't favorable for non-white dudes. Well, and it's particularly gross in the same way that the Oni Press Lion Forge story is where, like, you know, like everybody – is like th there's this vocal angry community out there who's like fuck Marvel for hiring all these women and SJW this that and the other thing and they're like pushing diverse characters and all this stuff while they're meanwhile treating their you know creators that are people of color or gay or whatever or or women uh like poorly and not defending them or representing them well and it's like Man, like that's your fucking job. Like you hired these people to do a job, and they're being torn down, and like you're not standing by them. Like that's shitty. That's a shitty fucking thing to do. You know? Yeah, I I completely agree. I think. And, and just to the other point that you made, Sean, where you're like, you have to specifically stand by those people when you know you like you said like you're gonna have a gay man write a character about a gay book that you are a gay a gay. A gay writer write a book about a gay character after there was already backlash. You should have known that there was going to be more backlash. That a certain group of people were going to hate this book and attack Cena. And if you're going to publish that book, you should fucking stand by that book. Especially when it's critically acclaimed. It'd be one thing if it sucked, right? But like, it was, by all accounts, people liked it. You know, people that it was for. So, I don't know. I'm inclined to believe that 
Marvel and DC have a crisis on their hands in that for them, they really have to toe the line. Because if they come out strongly and say, hey, you guys are dicks, then the reality is there is a segment of their audience that they will lose. Yeah. And a lot of the people, and I've said this a million times, a lot of the same people who will be mad about this article or this this um, blog post on Cena's behalf are the same people who don't buy comics because they'll you know they'll they'll read this on Tumblr they'll be you know angry and everything else and they won't go pick up the book you know they won't support his next book and but but the people who will be angry that Cena exists they're buying every book except his book, you know? And when their sales drop off, that affects Marvel as a whole. So they're evaluating what's more important. Is it more important to help this dude or is it more important to stay shut and do nothing so we don't lose dollars? That's my interpretation. Could be totally off base, but this is the second time that this has happened that we've been paying attention to. And DC also has had some issues on their end with not standing by things that could be controversial. Right. Well, it's, yeah, no, I think you're totally right, Sean. It's, it, it, it's clearly a, like, it's a bottom line thing. It's, it's reminiscent to what Pete and I discussed last week where we talked about Oni Press and, uh, and Lionsgate. Uh, talking Lionforge. About, uh, Lionforge. Lionsgate is a movie yes. production company. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, they've, they're dealing with their own kind of, controversies and they're just remaining silent on it because it feels like the impression is if you don't see anything at all it'll all blow over right yep and in a lot of cases it will you know yeah i think i think that's true uh i just think the lion forge only press thing is behind the scenes and so no one's life was at risk this is different because hate speech can actually lead to um, mur- murder and violence. So I think, I think morally speaking, I guess the responsibility becomes to protect the person you employ. To, uh, you know, look, Marvel is a big company; they can do whatever they want. Yeah, but I think I think what bugs me about it too is is mostly the context that it's Marvel doing this, right? That Marvel is like presenting themselves lately as like this bastion of like a new generation of heroes and trying to appeal to new readers from previously like you know uh, unspoken to markets and everything and 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 that is something that i think a lot of these you know like angry vocal hateful people that we've been talking around have called them out on as being bullshit, as being like wokevertising that you're trying to court this new market so you can make more money and pander to people. And when this is the thing that you do, when those people encounter criticism or threats, it fucking sure feels like that's what you're doing. And that's not me saying that those hateful pricks are right. It's me saying Marvel, like any company like this, right? Like you can't just sell rainbow shit on Pride Month and call yourselves an ally. You know, it's like, if you're gonna, like, try say that you wanna 
be a place where you want to make the Marvel Universe more representative, you want to have different kinds of writers be able to tell their story, well, then you should back that shit up. Not just say it and try to make it Well, anyone who thinks that it was about more than money is 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 living in a dreamland anyway. Of course right, those people it's a are fucking, right. Of course yeah, they're it's right. A company. I've said this from day one. And I'm with the movement. I want all of those things. But it is marketing. It it absolutely well, is. And honestly, Sean, I think it's like the thing that you said about Tanahisi Coates. Like it's the kind of thing that like I remember, like, not thinking about it in that way until you said it. And it is the thing of, like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah, like, that's clearly what's fucking happening here. You know? Is that, like, if you only let the hot new black author write black characters, like, you're showing your fucking hand there. Right. And and they did give him cap, but he's not a, he's not a, he's not a guy they picked up off the street looking for an opportunity, right? He's a famous writer. Just, yeah, he's a novelist. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, like a young a young black comic creator is not going to get the same opportunity that he did to write Black Panther and then jump to Captain America. Yeah. And if Black Panther hadn't been the monumental fucking success that it was, he wouldn't have gotten to write Captain America. This would have been the one book he did and then they would have let him write Blade or something. You know? <laughs> um, I agree. <laughs> But uh, let's let's move on. Let's talk about another creator who's upset. Uh, this time we're talking about George Perez, who's upset with DC. So George Perez wrote and drew New 52 Superman way back in the old year of 2011. He was on that book. What a time. I know. And he says that working on that book made it so that for the first time in his career, he didn't care. So <laughs> this this headline cracked me up because I know how much Phil hates this run. And when he's like, he's like, oh, I didn't care. It's like, I guess that was kind of apparent in the work, wasn't let, it? <laughs> before Phil jumps into that, let me let me tackle this a little bit. So yeah, yeah, he says, I think the only time I had any bitterness or uncomfortable feelings working was more recently because the fact the industry has changed so much and now it's corporate comics. We're sometimes being asked not to create comics, but to manufacture comics. And that bothered me during my run on Superman, the New 52 Superman. It was a book being done by committee, and I don't think I really got a chance to really create as opposed to, you know, follow the dictates of what we have in mind, put your name on it. And yet they couldn't make up their minds what they wanted from day to day. So that started to sour me. I would send in the script, and then they would do the editing and whatever changes and send it back to me until I... Finally just said, here's your script, however it's printed, whatever the final product is, it's your job. If the fans love it, fantastic. My name is attached to it. If they don't like it, I can't help that, even though my name is still attached to it. And that was, for me, the nadir, nadir of my... I have no idea what that word means. ...of my career, because for the first time working in the industry, I didn't care. They made me not care. And I don't blame the people at DC for it. They're following the dictates of Warner that now has a much more hands-on policy. I looked it up. It's the lowest point in the fortunes of a person or organization. Yeah, and it's pronounced Nader. Nader. Okay, there you go. So, obviously, uh, things did not go well for George Perez over there. Um, He, at some point, does reference the fact that... um, Grant Morrison was was put on Action Comics, and that that sure was, was done in secret, and that he had no way of making it so that his book reflected was what Grant was going to do because Grant's book take, took place in the past. 
Right. So, so yeah, that that's that was what I was going to bring up. This is this is pretty well documented. Uh, so obviously Grant was kind of given Action Comics number one as a compromise for editorial muddling with his Batman run because of the new Fifty Two being launched, and as a consequence of that, uh, what Grant was doing was not exactly well known ahead of time, and so. At a, the Superman editorial was very... They were very much handicapping what George was allowed to do on Superman. Right. Uh, Superman itself is not a good book. It really isn't. And that's no, that's no diss to George, because I like his writing. He wrote a very good Wonder Woman. Uh, however, I will remark that the... You ever read, like, I don't know, like a very generic superhero comic yes. book where the that's what that was it was very stilted in the in the narrative and it just felt like a generic third party was given the rights to write this and they just kind of churned it out uh it had these like elemental monsters in it which uh kind of relevant for reasons we'll talk about later uh and it just it it was a whole lot of nothing it, it kind of felt like it kind of felt like DC Comics was like, this is the very first issue of Superman. How do we attract the most general audience possible without having anything interesting to do? And that's what it was. Yeah, I remember when this book was coming out, and I deliberately didn't buy it because um, I was like, well, I'll buy Grant's book, you know? Um, and that yeah. was very good. Yeah. Well, actually, I didn't care for it. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're just like, yeah, I like Grant. Wait, no, not that one. <laughs> I love that book. We can talk about that another day. I feel sure. I feel conflicted about this story. I'm going to tell you why. On one hand, you could easily see this as sour grapes. You could easily look at it and go, okay, here's a guy who's been in the industry for a really, really long time and expects things to happen a certain way and, you know, is possibly maybe past his prime and you know, isn't necessarily putting out the same quality of books as he's as he has traditionally right. and is upset that DC didn't give him all the rope in the world that he might have been used to. He's upset that, you know, there was a young, uh, well, you know, younger, um, a, a more popular creator who came on board for his book and that that book was more um, uh, prioritized. And so I could easily see a scenario where George Perez feels that way and um, he thinks that he had the hot hand, but he really didn't, right? On the other hand, it's just as likely, I would say, that whatever he intended to do is not what actually came out. And that he right. may have had ideas that might have been good, they could have been bad, but they were different than what was on the pages, and that DC, and I guess Warner, that's his accusation, had certain plans that they needed to uh, roll out and George Perez needed to toe the line in terms of what he could do. That happens. Yeah, I mean, it definitely does, right? Like, we talked about this in the Vertigo episode. Um, there was that Karen Berger quote about how, you know, corporate mandates and creative vision just don't really mix. And, you know, um, as much as you can argue that there's a positive element to companies like Disney or Warner Brothers, like, owning a company like Marvel or DC because they have struggled 
during financial periods, and there's obviously an increased relevance of Marvel characters as a brand since their acquisition. Like, you know, th- there there's multiple angles to it, but I don't think that you can ever make the case that being owned by a company like that grants you more creative freedom. You know, I think when you think last week on the show, right, for our main topic, Phil and I were talking about the whole Marvel versus DC debate and how a lot of that is ultimately perception. And most of that perception is based on identities that the companies haven't had for 20 or 30 years. And, you know, I think, I think that's telling, you know, that when you think Marvel and DC, I think there's like, depending on who you are, I guess, right? There's an age that you attribute certain properties to the brand, even though that's not really representative of the brand as it is now, you know, um, Marvel and DC are both, you know, a little sleeker, a little smoother than they were when they were independent companies, you know? Um, That's just kind of the nature of where we're at with capitalism in this country, really. Yeah, I can't really dispute any of that. And I I think, Sean, your kind of point about this could be a blend between an older vet who's jaded by the process of corporate comics and uh, the... Honestly, like what he's probably saying is probably true, and he's probably just been around the show long enough that he just doesn't have the patience for it. Like he probably yeah. is not really really willing to compromise anymore because he's been doing this for probably thirty five years, forty years. Um, where you know maybe a younger talent is like maybe a little more willing to be like, oh yeah, I'll you know we can you know dance around on this committee book. Um, well, the reality is he doesn't have to anymore, right? Like. Yeah, that's probably how he feels. Too. Well, he might have to. Right. You know? I'm not saying that he shouldn't, but he probably feels that way. No, like, I, I mean, like, he might have to in terms of money. You know, like, yeah. he... Oh, that's, that's true. true. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and look, how many times has a George Perez run been preempted by an event? How many times has he had to fit two... It, how many times has he had to take his, you know, 12-issue run and take two of those issues out and insert two issues that have nothing to do with what he was trying to do or make them fit because now there's a new yearly event that came up. He's not used to working in this, in the modern era of comics. I'm not saying that that didn't happen before. I'm sure it did, but I think it's different now. I think it's less frequency. Yeah, exactly. It's more frequent and it's probably not as, not, not easy to manage, but someone like Tom Taylor, who's used to the bounce, he, get, he can do that. You know, Donnie Cates can do yeah. that. And they could complain, but the reality is that they don't have the name George Perez has, nor do they have the time in the industry, and they're trying to make their mark. So Yeah, right. You have to make compromises when you're an up-and-comer. Right. Um, so I, I, I get where he's coming from, but to be honest, at, at the very same time, when I read stuff like this, um, it comes across as like, sort of, yeah. Because at the end of the day, anyone who wants to tell stories without the intervention needs to work for image or wherever else and we all know right yeah yeah and that that's just the sad reality of it i think on some level and I, i guess i guess to his point though when he said that i feel like we're being less asked to create comics and and more to manufacture them that that point strikes a chord with me uh and it reminds me of uh I believe it was in the back of an issue of Walking Dead, but it was a, a interview or something like that with Robert Kirkman where he was talking about why 
he would never work with Marvel again, you know, or DC, and he would only ever do independent books from now on. And it was because he was complaining about the same thing that George Perez is complaining about, about like editorial and corporate mandate getting in the way of the ability to like tell a story sometimes, you know? And I think like, you're totally right that there are plenty of people that can work within those confines. And I think ultimately though, the unfortunate thing is that the best case scenario, right? Is that you kind of have to be, somebody like a Grant Morrison, you know, who can go and write, like, his, like, crazy Green Lantern story in a mainline monthly DC book because he's fucking Grant Morrison. Like, you know, like, he's a rock star. People will show up for what he's going to do, whereas, like, any of the people that you just listed before, right, like, they don't have that clout, you know? Like, they have to work within the system a little bit more, because they have to. And not to say that Grant doesn't, but I'm sure he's given a lot less fucking, uh, uh, to borrow Cena Grace's term, right? His leash is a lot less tight than those people's. Maybe these other folks should be considering practicing chaos magic so that they can boost their own brand. <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back because, look, man, you can't expect that you're going to walk into somebody else's house and pick up their toys and play with them and throw them all over the place and break them and they're not going to care. You know? dig. <laughs> yeah, you can't just walk into someone's house and shit on their wall, you know? Um, so, if, it like, you can't pick up Superman, right? And think that your big idea for Superman is what DC needs to publish because it's your idea. It doesn't work that way. And these are properties that are worth a lot of money. They're worth a lot of money. And if you mess up, look at what's happening right now, today, in 2019, with Batman and Tom King. Okay? Tom right. King, by the standards of the community and the standards of DC, is messing up. And now, it's selling worse than Immortal Hulk, which is a book that had no sales expectations. And right. that can't happen. However, the same writer was allowed to take Vision, a character no one cares about, and tell one of the best comic book stories that's come out in this decade. Why? Because it was a character no one cared about. And he did the same thing at DC with uh, Mr. Miracle. Couldn't you argue the same thing, though? Like, so, okay, just to walk, walk it back, because um, I think you're making a compelling point, but I want to push back on it because I'm interested in what you think. Uh, couldn't you say the same thing about Hulk? Hulk is an A-tier character that they did, and granted, maybe not always, but, like, he's a big Marvel character. And he, like, in an experimental book, right? Like, that book is selling because of its quality. And I feel like if Tom King's Batman, like, you've said you're dissatisfied with it right now. And I wonder if it was good trusting in that writer's creative vision and letting him do his thing would have paid off. You right, know? but you're talking about a gamble of 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 money. Like it's easier it's e it's a lot easier for me to be disappointed with a book than it is for the head of Warner. Because for that person it's costing them dollars that matter. For me it's costing me three ninety nine a month. And with the Yeah the, and, I, I and with the that. Hulk, Marvel doesn't live or die by the sales of that book. They do by Spider Man that's and that's why yeah. Nick Spencer's writing Spider Man. And also, just to kind of tag in on Sean's point, it's not like DC doesn't give a little bit of thread to people who are able to sell on Batman because 
even though Scott Snyder has expressed that he felt editorial mandates and he felt you know pressure from editorial, his book was wildly popular and it sold very very well. And he was given a lot of him and Greg Capullo both were given a lot of creative freedom to do the shit that they wanted to do. He made Jim it's Gordon just, Batman. He did. He made Jim Gordon <laughs> Batman. Um, now he was given a lot of pressure to kind of make each story arc feel like a movie, and it had like to be big. But you know what? He was able to work around those confines and constraints to do shit he wanted to do within that kind of parameter. Yeah. So, so where I come down on it is like you can complain all day but at the end of the day you need to recognize that this is a company this is a business that's paying you money to do what is supposed to be your passion which is create and write and if that's not satisfactory for you there are other places you can do that but they don't have batman your problem is you want to write batman but you want to do it how you want to do it and that's not cool you know and that's just not the world we live in because it matters if your batman sucks but if your Hulk sucks, eh. And I think it is also the thing that, like, you can get that opportunity, but you got to earn it. Be a big, you got to be a yeah. big dog. Yeah. You got to, you got to put in those fucking years of work to work your way to the point where they're going to give you your black label book and tell your weird story where the Joker's a good guy and Batman's exactly. evil. You know, like, you know, like, you got to prove that you've got the clout and you're not going to get to do that in the monthly. Like you have to like cut your teeth on the corporate books. And, and honestly, I think they gave Tom King a lot of wiggle room probably to do the shit he wanted to do. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, he dropped the ball. That's my, that was my yeah, point yeah. bringing that up is I think if Tom King had fucking nailed it, it would have been an example of proving why the immortal Hulk is working right now too of that. Like, yo, if you have a really a tier writer and they do something out of the box and it's fucking weird it can resonate and sell, but if you do that and it fucking flops and all of a sudden one of your two most profitable books is, like, dipping, like, that's a problem. Right. And so it comes back to when it's your decision and there are who knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line, do you roll the dice? Yeah. And... <laughs> in the case, in the case of, of, of Grant Morrison, right, on, uh, on X-Men... They rolled the dice, let this man go buck wild, and within a couple years, every single thing he did was irrelevant. But it's one right. of the most celebrated runs of X-Men yep. of all time. Yep. And that's the fucking disappointing thing, is that I think that what we're talking about is how you get the best stories, and I feel like it's hard to do that in this climate. But you know what? Sometimes, like, you know, being on top... Uh... Even if you're given a lot of freedom, if you do fuck up, it could it it could have major ramifications for your career. Uh, yeah, look at Tom King. Well, or, yeah, exactly. Or Bendis in his last year or two at Marvel when his sales started to finally dip over there, uh, he went to DC. And, well, but Bendis had years right. of 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 putting out books that were a little weird, the X Men stuff, you know, before he dipped. You know, he had he had some time. You know, and Grant Morrison, that whether it was Batman, whether it was X Men, whether it was Superman, his sales have never been bad. He he he's kind of an unusual case where he kind of genuinely got fucked over by editorial mandates. He fought constantly with Marvel editorial while he was uh, working on more on the X Men, and obviously the New Fifty Two thing really fucked him over on Batman. Right, I could talk about this all day. I was just gonna say, I, I just don't think that Tom King's a big enough name to get away with. He was getting what there. he's doing, yeah. But um, all right, we'll move on. We're going to talk now about the shock 
announcement of the week, and it's our main topic as well, that The Walking Dead is over. Robert Kirkman, you beautiful bastard. The dead can finally rest. So, The Walking Dead is over. After 193 issues, after a televi- two television shows, um, and... Several yeah, video several games. Several video games, <laughs> gra- uh, books, you know, um, novels, uh, all kinds of, of material. Um, sit, I would say sort of like resurrecting and keeping alive the zombie, you know, archetype. In- I feel, yeah, I feel like zombies were like on their way out and then Walking Dead hit at like the tail end of it and was just like, oh no, this still has a little bit more, a little bit more like life yeah, left in it, um, ironically enough. Robert Kirkman has made the choice to end the book. And this comes as a an absolute surprise because uh, issues 194 and 195 were actually solicited. And so people uh, rightly assumed that it was going to continue because that makes sense. Um, but uh, it's it's not going to continue. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to break down that news. We're going to talk about what the legacy of The Walking Dead will end up being, what it is. And... Um, you know, how Kirkman, how Image kind of move on from this and and what what the next steps are, I guess. So first, I want to talk about how this came out. Um, as far as I know, this came out because of in the back of the book, there's like a segment called Letter Hacks. And normally mm-hmm. that's the letters page. And um, Robert took it over to describe the whys and the hows of, of the book coming to an end and that being the last issue and that got leaked online that's my understanding of of this pete if you know something different than me no no i, I think you right. got it um yeah yeah like they there's just kind of the statement in in 193 and then you know it became a news story as these things do yeah uh so it's a really long statement and uh even i haven't read the whole thing myself I'm going to read a little bit of it because I do think, I mean, he deserves it, you know. Um, Absolutely. So I'm going to read a little bit from it. Uh, This is the end of The Walking Dead. That's it. It's over. We're done. I'm sure you have a million questions, and I'm sure you feel as emotional about all this as we do, if not more so. I'm completely willing to bet some of you are angry over this. I get it. I do. I mean, why didn't we announce this so that fans would have some time to prepare? Well, personally, I hate knowing what's coming. As a fan, I hate it when I realize I'm in the third act of a movie and the story is winding down. I hate that I can count commercial breaks and know I'm near the end of a TV show. I hate that you can feel when you're getting to the end of a book or a graphic novel. Some of the best episodes of Game of Thrones are when they're structured in such a way and paced to perfection so your brain can't tell if it's been watching for 15 (laughs) minutes or 50 minutes. And when the end comes, you're stunned. I think that's totally true. Um, So moving on. The Walking Dead has always been built on surprise. Not knowing what's going to happen when you turn the page, who's going to die, how they're going to die. It's been essential to the success of this series. It's been the lifeblood. That's been keeping it going all these years, keeping people engaged. It just felt wrong and against the very nature of this series not to make the actual end as surprising as all the big deaths. From Shane all the way to... Spoiler. Uh, To be honest, it seems like a really good idea. It seemed like a really good idea at the time. But now that we're here and the series is over, 
I'm having second thoughts. Not so much so that I'm changing course, that would be kind of impossible to do anyway, but it's possible, as much as I hate to admit it, that I'm genuinely feeling a sense of regret over this whole crazy plan. Um, so, I'm going to read just a little bit more his plan and, and stuff like that. Way back in early 2015, Charlie Adlard turned in the cover for issue 142. He had taken my direction of showing happy people at the Alexandria Fair, the booths, the commerce, a very civilized scene, and he'd worked wonders with the concept. It was a cover unlike anything that had come before. To me, it was a real turning point for this series. The point is, this was over four years ago at this point, but I knew pretty much every big story point that was going to happen all the way up to this final issue. A couple years prior, around 2013 or so, I'd even told Charlie at San Diego Comic-Con what the gist of this final issue was. I revealed how the story would end with Carl reading his daughter a storybook about Rick's exploits. I just didn't know exactly what issue that would fall in. I knew the end, but I didn't know where it would fall. I figured somewhere past issue 300. As I've said publicly, I've always wanted to reach that number, that big round Cerebus number that all the insane indie comic creators tried to chase. But when I saw the cover to 142, it dawned on me, oh shit, we're already at the fair. The Commonwealth is just around the corner, and oh man, there's no way I'm going to be make it, able to make it to 300. It was the first time I realized that I just, just didn't have enough story worked out to get there. I didn't know exactly how long we'd fight the Whispers, or how long we'd be spending in the Commonwealth. Spoiler, but I knew the whole run wouldn't be another 150 issues. I think that's good enough for now. I stopped reading this book a very, 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 very long time. And I think for as many readers as the book does have, there are probably just as many who stopped reading it a very, very long time ago. Um, and that's the nature of big books like this that have so many issues. You drop off at some point. It's hard to keep up. But... I don't think it can be understated just how important the Walking Dead book is to comics, specifically leaving all other forms of media out of it. And so, Pete, I know you're a reader. Talk to me about where you are, where you are with your reading of this book. Did you read this issue? Sure. How do you feel about this? Yeah, when did you fall okay. off? I I have read up until the Whisper storyline. So I have not read the Commonwealth arc, which is now revealed to be the very last arc of the book. Um, so I I have not read this issue yet because my plan is to go finish that arc because I'm not far off from the end. You know, I'm going to I'm going to finish it. Um, I fell off the book the same way that I do with a lot of these long form books where same thing that happened to me with Saga. Uh, and even Invincible, right? Where it's not that I'm not interested in it. It's that after a certain point, it's just like once you get past that, I'm so into this. I'm ravenously consuming it. And then you're just reading it month to month. I, I wasn't enjoying it as much, you know, uh, because I was used to the pace of like reading a few issues at a time. So I just became a trade waiter. Uh, so, like, when the Whispers arc was going on, I was still reading monthly, and then when we got there, I waited until it was done, I read up and finished it, and then they started the new arc, and I was like, right, I'll jump back into this one when it's done. And I didn't realize that that was going to be the end of the book, you know? <laughs> um, so I, I think I'm, like, I'm somewhere in the neighborhood of, like, 30 issues behind or something like that, you know? It's not, not too much, about a weekend's worth of reading, probably. Um, but uh, the... In, in the same way that The Walking Dead is monumentally important to the modern comics landscape, and I think in a lot of ways the future of comic books, uh, it was very much that book for me as a reader. Because, you know, when 
I got turned on to The Walking Dead from the TV show. Uh, the entire first season had wrapped, and I remember they put it on Netflix, and I watched it with my girlfriend at the time and, and got into it. You know, I really enjoyed the first season, and I thought it was really captivating, and, and I found out that it was based on a book. I didn't know it was a comic when I first started watching it. Um, I think somewhere in, like, second or third episode, I was like, yeah, this is really cool. I want to go read up on it a little bit. Found out it was an image book. I had been aware of image because of Spawn and, like, Witchblade and stuff like that, but it was never a big thing for me. And I was like, oh, I'm going to check it out. And I, the first night that I started reading it, um, like, I downloaded a bunch of them right off, like, Demonoid or something like that because it was, like, 2011. <laughs> and, uh, and I read, like, the first, like, 20 issues in, like, a night. I stayed up until, like, 3 or 4 in the morning and then, like, downloaded a bunch of them on my phone and was, like, reading them in the bathroom at work, you know, because um, I was just so into it. And it was the first time, aside from uh, Why the Last Man, that I had read, uh, or I, and I guess Scott Pilgrim at that point, um, where I'd read, like, an indie book like this, you know, that was, like, what I wanted out of a comic. Like, it was that ultimate Spider-Man, it's one creative team with one vision, and it's a straight line, you know? And I was so into that format um, that I started exploring the rest of Image's catalog and everything. So, like, I don't, I honestly think that if it wasn't for me getting into The Walking Dead at that point, like, I don't think I ever would have, I don't think I would have stayed engaged with comics in the way I have. I think I would have become a more casual reader, you know, in terms of, like, if, if one of my more engaged comics friends was like, oh, this is really good, you should read this, I would have read it, you know? Um, but I don't think I would have gotten into like the rebirth of image in the way that I did where I was like reading every book they were putting out for a few years, you know? Um, do you feel old now, Pete, that both Invincible and now Walking Dead are basically over? Yeah, I do. Um and I've been feeling that way a lot lately. I've been realizing that um a chapter of my life has really come to a close in a major way. And, and I feel like that in a lot of ways is like not only being signaled by the ways that I'm moving my life in a new direction in my personal life, but also how a lot of the media that I think of when I think of my 20s and college and, and that sort of stuff is ending or is over now, you know? Um, and I think it was really emotional for, for me for Invincible to end. Um, and I think Walking Dead will even be more so, you know, and like Invincible, like is a series that I am, am far more connected with, but I think that like the Walking Dead was way more influential on me in terms of like what it, the path that it put me on. Welcome to Pete's therapy session. So how are you feeling? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Um, go ahead. I, I, well, just to answer that question, like, honestly, like I feel good about it because this like the thing that that Sean read from Kirkman and I think we'll read some more of this statement at some point like this is why he's my favorite writer you know like I, I love that like he wanted this big round number but he's like well the story's done at 193 he did you think he couldn't have written seven more issues if he wanted to and bring us to 200 of course he could have but that's not his style you know and like it was the same thing with Invincible like him and Otley were both just kind of like you know what like this feels like the end so let's end it you know and like a lot of people i think are critical of the walking dead for like going on for too long and for like doing the same things over and over again um which i've always i i see that argument but i think that if you like the book and you read the book 
you know that that's not really true. Right. You know, like the themes change every arc. You know, and the 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 message of the book has always been hope, but the way that it explores that evolves and changes over time as the characters right. do. You know, um, and and I and I I truly think The Walking Dead is one of the best works in the medium. You know, and I think that like it kind of has gotten. I think its its legacy is a little unfairly tarnished because it's gone on as long as it has. And it was such a big cultural moment and its cultural relevance outlived or didn't outlive the book, you know, or the or the property. Yeah. Right? Like it, it probably like if it had ended around the time that they were like doing like all out war and all that stuff when a Walking Dead was at its fucking peak, you know, I think it would be looked at in a different way. Um, but for me, like, I don't think that's fair, you know, cause like the walking dead is great and it's achieved so much. It is impacted the industry in like such a huge way. Like image, I don't think would be the company it is today without the walking dead and so many books like wouldn't exist. Um, so what's going to happen to the TV show? It's going to continue. I think it's going to continue for at least a bit longer. You know, they have plans for those like Rick spinoff movies and like, you know, I, I have all this stuff that they're going to try and do. And it's like the show's still making money. It's certainly not what it was, but you know, I, I think it'll probably go a little bit longer and then they'll cap it eventually. A walking dead. But it's, it's so, it's so far diverged from the books now that like, it doesn't really matter. A, a walking dead movie feels like it would be a Chris Pratt vehicle. I mean, I think we'll get that eventually. Like, I think once the show and everything is over and it's, like, quieted down, like, we're going to have to revisit The Walking Dead at some point, you know? Like, I think it's inevitable. Well, Pete, this whole new chapter in your life gives you an opportunity to read new things and watch new things. Yeah, it's, I'm excited about it. Like, that's the thing is, like, I'm not... It's, it's bittersweet, right? Like, it's sad, but I'm also ready for it to be over, you know? Like, and and I'm happy that, like... You know, Kirkman and, and Adler, like, are going out on their terms, you know? It's like, hey, like, this is the story. And, like, that was what drew me to Walking Dead in the first place, you know? So I think it's I, – I, I just have nothing but respect for for Kirkman and, like, his – the way that he writes and the way that he makes creative decisions. You know, I, I really do think that he's a – A visionary. A, a creator with – what's a visionary. that? Visionary. I mean, I would I would say that's fair, but I, I would say I think he's also just a creator with integrity, you know, and like I don't I, I'm not speaking to like him as like a personal guy, but like just in terms of like, you know, he's made his fucking money and he could fart out Walking Dead for the next 50 years and people would still buy it, I'm sure. And like, you know, he like he could have left comics in the rearview mirror like when he started getting Hollywood offers and everything. And it's like, you know, I just I think it's that like he's true to his work. And his passion is, like, making comics, and I think he makes good comics. And the fact that, like, he, like, with both of the two books that are, I think, his, probably going to be his legacy, like, he chose to end them when it was time to end them for him. And I, re- I respect that a lot. And I respect your celebrity crush on Robert Kirkman. <laughs> yeah, he's he's the dude, man. Sean, um, you've read a lot of Walking Dead. How are you feeling? Uh, I... I... I wouldn't, I've definitely not read as much as Pete. I read, I read like, um, I have three of those big 
uh, hardcovers. Big ass compendiums. Not the compendium. Not well. Maybe it's okay. called that. I'm, I'm not even sure. To be honest, it's big though. Um, so, like, have you gotten to like issue 100, like the Alexandria nah, area and nah, stuff, or are you I'm way before, before that? that? Okay. Um, I don't have emotions towards The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead is something that I enjoyed really probably without passion. Mm-hmm. And I, I, most of my relationship to it is, is the show, which, again, I enjoyed sure. without passion. It's it's like good stuff, but nothing that I really spent a lot of time thinking about too, too much. Um, and I think... Things end, you know, and that's good. And Kirkman can do other stuff. And uh, Charlie can do other stuff, you know. And Image can hopefully prop something else up, right? Um, yeah, I think that's the the most concerning part about it is, like, what does this mean for Image? Right. Walking Dead, obviously a very popular book even still. And something that I think they're going to miss financially, right? I would I would say so. Does Kirkman have another big hit in him? I mean, his last couple few books haven't quite hit the way that um, Walking Dead did, or even Invincible did, and that's fine. You know, that's they sell. Yeah, they're, they're fun. Yeah, they do like, fine. Um, can he release something else to, to to prop them up? You know, who knows? Yeah, um, that remains to be seen. Image is going to need. A spearhead book, I would argue. Uh, maybe Saga is that now. I don't know. But that's on hiatus. But Saga's like on... It's always on hiatus. And it's like they're taking a huge break right now. And um, I did actually want to just read this one thing. Uh, Ryan Otley, artist from Invincible, my favorite artist. Uh, he posted some stuff about the end of The Walking Dead. Obviously, you know, him and Robert Kirkman are good friends. And have had a, you know, a, a working relationship for over a decade. Um... On Instagram, he posted one of the, like, covers he did uh, for the book, like, as an alt. And um, he said, congrats to Robert and Charlie on this huge run. I really hope this industry sees more heavyweight books like this that just take the industry by storm. And I think that is the thing that I, I am most concerned about is that I want there to be more Walking Deads out there. You know, I want there to be more books like this that that penetrate the market and allow an empire to form around them the way that image has, you know, um, because the success of the walking dead meant so much for the success of indie comics as a whole, you know, like, I think even like a saga, right? Like how many people became aware of image because of the walking dead and then red saga, you know, like, and I'm, and I'm not saying it's like a one-to-one, like saga wouldn't have been successful without the walking right. dead, but 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 its influence can't be understated in terms of like what it meant for that company and for attention on non-superhero books. Yeah, but listen, Rob Liefeld walked with Image so that Walking Dead could run. Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, you guys never asked what I thought. Yeah, I was going to do that right after uh, Pete was done. Yeah, what are your thoughts, man? So is this like a zombie book or what? Oh Christ, Pete! Is it? Uh, I, I've never read it. It's actually about aliens. Oh shit! I love cowboys and aliens. Ugh. Um, so I yeah I'd never read this book. I I've always I've always been kind of turned off by the whole zombie thing in general. Um, 
I, I'm not a huge zombie guy either. Uh, and uh, in one of our book clubs, I revealed that I don't really care for dinosaurs in comics. Um, I feel the same way about zombies. So it's something I never gave a fair chance in its early run, I guess. And it's like anything that's long and has a large volume of content. It's just intimidating. It's and, and, and with, ma- with the maturation of, of uh, it's getting older, you know, um, I realize it's probably something I should read and I'd probably, uh, you know, I have a good chance I would enjoy it. Um, but it's like the Sandman thing where it's just so much stuff. Um, one thing that's really great about image comics in general, um, is it's just something like this. It's allowed to end when it needs to end, which you don't get with, you know, Marvel or DC just because no person owns Spider-Man, no person owns Superman. Um, so in a way, maybe like a famous manga would, it's allowed to end when it ends. And there's something bittersweet about that, obviously. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that in a lot of ways. Um, I think, I think it's good for, for Robert Kirkman, you know, um, you want to be able to tell new stories. You want to be able to, to move forward. And I think that that's the spirit of, of why image is a thing, right? Um, to not have thousands of issues of, 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 you know, Rick Grimes and his adventures, in a post-apocalyptic America, to to move on, to have real change, to be able—it's more special because it ends. Yeah, to be able to, to to kill characters and have them be dead, and what that means, you know, I think all of those things are represented well with The Walking Dead, especially uh, of all the image books. I think The Walking Dead showcases and, and Invincible. Robert Kirkman made those books. Um. I'm not going to say as a, as any kind of necessarily commentary on on comics or superhero comics, but if you if you read it that way, you can definitely mine it for those kinds of things. I think why Kirkman's work resonates with me is I think him and I have very similar attitudes about comics. I think like you look at Invincible, and Invincible has all the spirit of a Silver Age book with teeth. You know, with stakes. And not in an edgy way. Like, because I don't even think that The Walking Dead is, like, super edgy. Like, there are parts of it that are very edgy. But, like, it's not an edgy book. It, it, it's in a, a, a pretty edgy genre. And it's gritty. But, like, his biggest strength is, is that he writes characters that are believable. And treats them like people. You know? Like, they love, they live, they die. And, you know, that that makes them work better but i think like at the end of the day like he writes the way that he does and he works in the medium that he does because he genuinely loves comics you know and he really has an earnest love for them but he's critical of them because there's a lot of ways in which they're very rigid you know and i think the fact that like walking dead is a seminal book because characters die and it matters is funny you know and like maybe that's not weird anymore but at the time, it kind of was, you know, the fact that like, you know, Shane dies at the end of the first arc of The Walking Dead, Spoilers. you know, sorry, um, that's that's the thing that like, it's a moment that people remember and it's like, holy shit, you know, like, I can't believe he did that. And that's the whole book. 
is just all the time. Things happen because guess what? In life, things happen. Deaths aren't always momentous. Things happen by accident. You know, like that's that's what makes his books exciting. You know, is that like they're they're, they're really like every issue is an important issue. I, I I do think there's a bit of there's a bit of humor in the idea that the same individual who you know has definitely taken to task the. Um, never-ending nature of superhero comics allowed his book to go on for so long that there are probably <laughs> more people who've read it and stopped than um, than are currently reading, uh, and just kind of let the you know let it become old, if you will. Yeah, well, and it's funny because ultimately, it's that same attitude that is why the Invincible, why both Invincible and The Walking Dead ended the way that they did. Because if you were a regular reader of those books and, and like a fan of Kirkman's, uh, he always said that his his intention was that eventually he when he was done writing Invincible, he would pass it on. Right. And somebody else would start writing it. And, you know, he said his goal was to be sitting in a retirement home with Otley being like, they fucking ruined it, you know? Um, and he said that his plan was to write The Walking Dead for 300 issues and that eventually Rick would die and, you know, he kind of always envisioned Carl taking over and, like, all these other things that never happened because, you know, he realized it was time to end it. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about the the wider impact of, of The yeah. Walking Dead. Obviously, it spawned a TV show that is insanely popular. I mean, sure, the popularity has waned, but at, at, at various points over the last decade it was the most popular show on te- on all of television i don't think that's right even it, it, it beat out fucking football <laughs> on sunday nights that can't be understated a huge amount of people watched the walking dead for years right we've we've been with the walking dead television show now for almost nine years which is hard to believe and reminds me of my age but it's been around for a while and the, the comic book was popular, for sure, but the the show took it to a whole other level. It made Robert Kirkman a, a, a made man, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, and it put, I'm not, well, yeah, no, I think that's a fair statement. It put AMC on the map in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and that. Because wasn't, wasn't Walking Dead before Breaking Bad? Or were they concurrent? I know they ran at the same time for a while, but I, I'm not well, sure. Breaking, Breaking Bad started in 2008, so okay, um, and Walking Dead 2010. Oh, was, okay, okay. So maybe not made AMC, but I would say it like it pr- proved they weren't a one hit wonder. Yeah, because even even Breaking Bad, if I'm remembering correctly, like the ratings weren't insane for that show the way they were for The Walking Dead. No, I mean. Critically, it was obviously a darling, but like you said, no, literally no television show was as popular as The Walking Dead for right. years. So that definitely changes things big time. But I think because of that and because of the fact that it wasn't a Marvel or DC property, it opened the door for so, so, so many other creators to tell their stories and have opportunities for um, film and television adaptations because – Really, around this time, that's when you start getting into, like, um, 
different kinds of, of movies and, and shows that are image books originally or, you yeah. know, boom books or whatever, you know, smaller publisher. That wasn't a thing as much in the past. It existed, but a lot of times you didn't even know that it was a comic. Like, um, uh, V for Vendetta, right? Like, that's a movie that sure. so many people love and they swear by, whatever. Lots of people don't know that's a comic or did it at the time. Or like, or uh, or like Drag Me to Hell, like stuff like that. Yeah, there's a lot of random things. Road to Perdition. Like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, or like Sin City, Sin even. City. Like, shit sure. like that, where it was like, you'd get them, but it wasn't. Like, Walking Dead made it where people were like, oh, comic books are where the next big IP is going to come from. Right. Outside of Marvel or DC. Because unless you are Disney or Warner, you will not be able to make a Spider-Man movie. Or, or Sony, I guess. Yeah. Um, but now there are all these different properties. Look, we're going to have um, Christopher Sabella on the show next week. His book, Crowded, got picked up, you know, um, to make a movie out of it. And what, it, was, it was like after the first issue. Yeah. Like, even, you know, so it's like, that's the whole thing is like, now it's like, like, I remember Descender, they sold the movie rights to it before the first issue was out. Right. It's based on the fucking solicitation. Yeah. Deadly Class uh, just was canceled, but that never has a shot, I don't feel. If Umbrella yeah, Academy. The Walking Dead needed to exist for us to get those shows. Um, yeah. And that's, that's great because comic books are such a rich place for storytelling and for so long people have not viewed them that way and i think robert kirkman always championed you know independent creators and their ideas mattering you know mattering Mm -hmm. more in some instances than what the big two could pump out and because of him putting his money where his mouth is and because of other people seeing the vision and wanting to you know ride that wave we now live in a world where somebody like Rick Remender, who's been busting his ass in the in the industry for twenty plus years, now has opportunities to get his shows out, to get his books seen by the world. You know, because the world yeah. is never going to buy Deadly Class, but they'll watch a show. I guess not because it's canceled. But uh-huh. you know, there was a chance, and I think that's yeah. what matters. Yep. Yeah, and I totally agree with that, man. And I think like, <laughs> I think that's the fact that like Kirkman is the only person that was ever made an image partner who wasn't one of the original founders, like speaks to like that, you know, and like that new wave that we saw at, at companies or at image and then inspired all these other companies that came out of it. You know, like, I don't know that you get like a black mask and stuff like that without that indie Renaissance. And I don't know that that, that indie Renaissance happens without the walking dead. I agree because I think, you know, I would be interested to know, if there's any way we could know the statistics behind how many people their first comic book or their return to comics was The Walking Dead. Oh, I, I would bet a fucking lot. A lot. And and I don't think all those people became m- monthly readers of a million different books, but I bet a lot of them tried one or two other comics and read a lot more comics than they ever would have otherwise. Phil, what do that you is, think? I think that's an interesting question because I bet that The Walking Dead picked up a lot of lapsed readers, but I wonder how many people it was their first book, because I'm willing to bet a lot of people's first book was probably just some off-random book of, like, Spider-Man or Batman or something. But 
I mean, I, I know a bunch of people anecdotally who watched the show and then were like, I want to read the comic. And then they were like, oh, I read a comic. Comics are cool. What other comics should I, I read? And I was like, read Saga. I, read this. I believe and, that for sure. I believe that. And I bet there's a lot of people that applies to. I think those are the book market people. You think so? I think some of them. Because, hmm. again, like, I, like I, just anecdotally, right, I have several friends who are not comics people. But they know one or two comics people like me. They watched The Walking Dead. They watched the Marvel movies or something. And then they were like, I want to get into this whole comics thing. You like comics. Give me some direction. And those okay, people, that's a lot. now you look on their, their, or even like your roommates, Phil, like Joy and Caleb are like this. They're not like monthly comic book store people. But a month ago, I was talking to Joy about how she was reading Silver Surfer. Don't invoke their you know, like names. I, there are people like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. Sorry. No, you're beep that no, out. You're fine. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> uh, I didn't say their last no, he names. Said, don't whatever. invoke their name. It's a joke based on. Spider-Man. Oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Solid Thank reference. You. Um, okay. Uh, so, so I, I, I think those people exist, and that's what I think we're always talking about when you talk about the casual market. It does exist. I have a friend. Uh, it was one of my roommates in college, right? And it, it's that same friend I was talking about earlier, her sister. And on her bookshelf with all of her other books, she's got like 30 or 40 trade paperbacks of a bunch of random image books and like and shit. You know, like I think there are people like that. And I think a lot of those people got turned on because they checked out The Walking Dead because it was a cultural fucking phenomenon. And then they were like, oh, comics aren't all just superheroes. Like, is there stuff out there for me? Yeah, I know. Now I know you're lying because no one would ask you for what books to like. No one would come to you for a recommendation because why would they? Uh, I I see. I really thought that you were gonna say I don't believe that story because it, it it would mean that I would have to have two friends. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, obviously your dad and your hand count. So like, I'm not gonna take that away from you. Um, <laughs> but. I think that's fair. Uh, you, you guys are a lot more familiar with this than I am, so uh, I'll I'll play the role of the the listener who's also not familiar. What what do you think the percentage is of people that watch the show? Like, how, what's the general audience of retention for that show like compared to like the monthly reader base? Just out of curiosity, fifty percent. Fifty percent, really? No, I is that have like no idea. You ask me a percentage. What do I look like? I have numbers in front of me. I work for Image. <laughs> what do I look like, Marco? Yeah, I guess that's something Marco would know off the hand. He'd be like, "Oh, it's actually fifty-three point sixty-five percent." Well, I, I, like, I, I, I didn't know how familiar you were with like millions of people that watched it versus like. Well, here, here's just for like anecdotal numbers. I think at the peak of season five of The Walking Dead, I think that was around when they hit their highest number ever. You know, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 15 million people like tuned in for an episode or some shit like that. And multiple millions of people tuned in for episodes of The Walking Dead. And I don't think there's any one issue of The Walking Dead that sold a million copies, okay. right? So it's it's not a huge percentage, but The Walking Dead did sell like uh, over 100,000 copies for random issues several months of its run, which is unprecedented for anything that's not you know batman or something like that yeah. you know so i guess to get to the root of the question that sean asked i i don't think there's a large percentage of people that walking dead was their first comic because there are clearly like x-men comics from the 90s that like were in the millions um but mm, but but no but that's only considering single issues yeah. though 
That's not considering trades. And the people that I'm talking about, I don't think went and started buying, going to a comic book store and buying singles. They went in to a Barnes and Noble or Amazon and bought a hardcover book or a floppy. Which also, probably wasn't in the millions. I can't. Speak I mean, to that. probably yeah, I not. But I don't so, think though. that that negates what I'm saying either, because there are a lot of people who weren't alive in the '90s. There are a lot of sure. people who weren't, you know, Which, reading in the '90s. That that was gonna take me to my next thought. So it it might be for a for, for a certain generation. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think for this generation, um, and I think for the burgeoning market of of casual and book readers, I think it, that's probably true. And I don't know that that's like a huge percentage of the market, but even if it's like five percent or whatever, like of the whole industry right now, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> And and beyond that, even if they never necessarily went and bought a Walking Dead comic, the fact that the most popular show of all time not okay, well, well hold on. The fact <laughs> that, was... that, the, that one of the most popular shows of all time is a comic book based show. Yeah. And that people are aware of that puts comics somewhere in their mind. So maybe they don't read The Walking Dead, but they're like, Oh, that's a comic? Well, what else is a comic? You know, all of those things become possible because the show exists. And especially because it's not a Marvel or a DC property. Um, it, it also might have had an actual impact in, in changing popular, concept, pop, popular perception of comic books, maybe. Where, you know, for kind of that boomer generation that we talked about earlier a lot of people thought comic books are for kids because in the silver age they really were marketed directly to children and written yeah. for a, an audience that were kids um whereas obviously walking dead isn't published with children in mind um and i think it there's a good possibility that it had an actual impact on changing changing people's perception of the medium as uh, an art form which might really complement what Sean's saying about how it, in lieu of Walking Dead success it led to more creators getting uh, books picked up and licensed for movies or TV shows yeah absolutely I, I honestly think that in a lot of ways The Walking Dead is like it's like this generation's like Watchmen in terms of being like a disruptive force in the industry and having people outside of comics talk about it in a way where it's like, oh, this is relevant. Which of course it always was, but it's like, that matters. You know, like I, I don't think that Christopher Sabella's image book gets a movie deal if The Walking Dead doesn't exist. Well, I don't agree because he was on the comics pals and we gave him that bump. That's true, that's true. If he yeah. wasn't on our show, it definitely wouldn't have been picked up. Could we even have our millions of activated listeners, though, if all those people weren't turned on to comics by The Walking Dead? Who's to say, Phil? <laughs> That's fair. I can't. Ar I could argue with that, but, man, I'm not going to argue with that in, in lieu of the fact that we might lose millions of listeners if I badmouth The Walking Dead. Exactly. So, instead of that, I'm just going to quickly uh, talk about some of the... <laughs> the amazing numbers uh, behind this this series. So we're talking about, let's see, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different books uh, produced, um, some co-written by Kirkman, 
um, some where he didn't co-write them. Uh, we're talking about, uh, what, 16 trades? We're talking, no, no, 32, 32 volumes. 32 volumes. Jesus. <laughs> 16 hardcovers, 8 right. omnibus editions, and 4 compendiums. That's a massive amount of story. Not to mention, what, 12 seasons of television based on the property? Yeah, an immense amount of seasons of, of television. Uh, a box set, in fact. Not for television, but for the book. Uh, the 15th anniversary box set. Various different other projects. Um, you know, books that have the covers... You know, art art books, things like that, um, survival guides, all kinds of stuff. Real quick, while you're on the note of the art book, I want to give a specific shout out to Charlie Adler, too, because we've been talking a lot about Robert Kirkman. Obviously, he's the creator and the visionary behind the brand. But I don't – Matt Murphy made a tweet about this the other day, and it really resonated with me. I don't think Charlie Adler gets enough attention for the fact that this is a monthly book and it looks as good as it does. He's an incredible talent. And I feel like I'm so excited to see what he does next. Yeah, absolutely. He's going to have quite a career, I'm sure, after this. And his career was made by this book, right? So, Oh, yeah. Um, but all of that stuff that we just talked about amounts to a legacy that I think um, really won't be replicated. And I do think that The Walking Dead is going to stand... Um, among the annals of other really important books as an important book, just because, uh, like, disregarding quality, quality aside, more because of the impact that it's had on the industry, not just the comics industry, but, you know, the the, the entertainment industry at large. And so yeah. that's really important. It can't be understated. And um, hats off to Robert Kirkman uh, for what he did, what he accomplished, and everyone else, all the editors, all the, you know, everybody. Um, because Shout out to Cena Grace. There you go. <laughs> One of the first yeah. editors of the book. Um, so thank you for that. We appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to what all of those people end up doing in the future. So, yeah, cannot yeah. agree more. That's going to do it here for us on the Comics Pals. Let us know your relationship to... The Walking Dead. Did you start with the book? Did you start with the uh, television show? Are you still a reader or a watcher? Or are you that rare individual who falls outside of the 15 plus million that has never seen an episode of The Walking Dead or read the book? Me. There you go. Well, you've never seen an episode? Wild, man. Nope. Bugged out. Very bugged out. Um, you can let us know your history with The Walking Dead by hitting us up all over the place, all podcast hosting platforms. While you're there, drop us a like, um, drop us a comment, you know, share, whatever, do all that good stuff. Um, you can write to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. You can get us on social media at thecomicspals. All of those ways you can reach out to us. They help us out a lot and they're free to do. So help out your pals. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we've got plenty of book clubs out there for you guys. We're talking about book clubs for Spider-Man, book clubs for Captain Marvel, book clubs for Shazam, book clubs for Hellboy. It's all there. Go find it. It's easy, easily accessible. If you like a character, we probably have a book club on them at, at this point. Um, and, Howard the Duck. 
Howard, even Howard the Duck. What the hell? Oh, but that's not out yet. Um, Jesus, Phil. Oh, um, shit. All right. My bad. And, uh, of course, our Spider-Man Far From Home review is also out. So if you want to go check that out, swing over. Swing nice. over. Nice. <laughs> and uh, give that a listen. So with that, let's do some plugs. Pete. Thank you guys so much for joining us here for another episode of The Comics Pals. If you want to connect with me on social media and talk to me about The Walking Dead, I would love to hear from you. So hit me up at loud underscore Pete, and let's talk about the legacy of the book a little bit more. Um, and let me know what you've been thinking about it if you're, if you're caught up, because uh, I'm going to be diving back in pretty soon here so I can finish it up. Uh, if you want to catch some more stuff from me, you can find some of my work over at LootPots.com, uh, where I host their weekly Nintendo podcast, The Potscast, as well as the Patreon-exclusive show, After Dark. Uh, so if you want to hear me talk about Nintendo or the differences between British and American culture, go check it out. All right, Phil. If, uh, if you're not an appreciator of what I do and you want to harass me, then tweet me at Toto and Toe. That's T-O-T-O-I-N-I-N-O. <laughs> Um, if you like what I do, then tweet at me at Mr. Marco Animoto. Um, that's my um, burner account where I <laughs> post all the stuff. Um, you want to send him nudes? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, otherwise, you can follow my uh, other account that I, it's nothing. Cyborg Bebop. You can follow me there, I guess. All right. And as for me, I am. On Twitter and Instagram only, at Sean Soapbox, you could hit me up to talk about Spider-Man Far From Home because I want to talk about that. And if you want to hear me talk about it, you can listen to our review. It's over there. Go listen. Give it a so listen. So with that, we're the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week. Seriously, Jake Dillon. Oh,